know, some of you might have seen or heard on the news this past week that uh, the school board of the San Francisco Unified School District recently decided uh, to remove the names of 42 schools uh, in the district. Uh, as uh, the Washington Post reported, uh, the, the panel voted 6-1 to one to approve this plan, which calls for removing from schools names of those who engaged in the subjugation and enslavement of human beings, oppressed women, committed acts that led to genocide, or who otherwise significantly diminished the opportunities of those amongst us to the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And again, since uh, they didn't have new names uh, for these schools, they weren't uh, renamed, they're just more denamed. And uh, among those schools that were listed as uh, to be denamed are Balboa High School, Mission High School. Remember, these are all connected in some way with subjugating or oppressing people. Abraham Lincoln High School, Thomas Jefferson Elementary, George Washington High School, Herbert Hoover Middle School, Francis Scott Key Elementary, Presidio Middle School, uh, the James Madison Campus, which is an elementary school, Paul Revere K-8 School, Alamo Elementary, El Dorado Elementary, and, uh, I chuckled at this one, Diane Feinstein Elementary. Uh, and this last one is especially noteworthy because she was actually the, the mayor of San Francisco uh, and is a current senator representing California. And in their opinion, she was not doing enough of what they wanted. And overall, this decision uh, to dename all of these schools uh, is indicative of the, the larger division uh, taking place within our nation. As I uh, spoke about uh, several weeks ago on that series on the social justice revolution, the, the ideology behind these denamings is extremely divisive. And if you're only going to, to look at uh, what people did wrong according to your own modern evaluation, we really aren't going to have any names on too many schools. Uh, And uh, if we were only remembered for our sins, none of us would would be remembered Uh, in the sense of we we are uh, sinners to our core uh, and and only focusing on sin without looking at the the legacy that so many of these uh, men uh, contributed to our our history is just... uh, there's a moral insanity there. And, I, and I've spoken about how divisive that ideology is. Right? But what we're going to see today in, in John chapter 7 is that I think Jesus is even more divisive than this ideology. And, and we're going to see that this morning in John chapter 7. The, the way that uh, because Jesus is going to make truth claims... That the natural result of truth claims is it, it's going to divide. Uh, it's going to create division among people. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
And this is, this is what happens when, when the truth of Christ is proclaimed. It is divisive. It creates tension in homes and households and families because it's re- regarding what is true, what is reality. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, uh, when uh, Paul and his companions were, were in some trouble, the, the city accused them of being uh, those who were proclaiming the gospel as being those men who were turning the world upside down. Think about that. that that's not a, a small accusation. And yet that is the, the divisive nature of the gospel, which is clear in the ministry of the apostles. But again, this morning I want to look at John chapter 7 and, and how Jesus himself was divisive uh, and indeed still is today. If you're, if you're there with me in John chapter 7, we're going to look this morning at, at verses uh, 40 through 52. Uh, and this is still the, the final day. Of the Feast of Booths. As I said, John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 are uh, surrounding the events of this feast in Jerusalem. Uh, And when we came to verse 37 last week, we saw that we are now on the final day of this feast. And last week we saw this amazing invitation that, that Jesus pronounced. If you look at me in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then what we're going to see this morning is the response of the people to Jesus's invitation. He proclaims this invitation, gets everyone's attention, stands up, cries out. And this is going to be the response, beginning in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. And others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid laid hands on him. And the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was, the, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pause and, and pray. God, you are perfect in knowledge, in wisdom, in power. You reign supreme over all things. The universe which you have created, which you hold in your hands, that you have sustained every moment of all of our days. Lord, help us now to study your word so that we might grow 
in knowledge of who you are, that we might grow in faith, trusting all that you promise, that we might be transformed inwardly and that we might then live the truth of your word consistently in our lives day by day. May you bless the proclamation of your word now and grant us understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we study this passage this morning, we're going to see how this crowd of Jewish people and among them the Jewish leaders, how they responded uh, to Jesus' invitation and to his teaching ultimately there uh, during that Feast of Booths. And what we're going to to see uh, is is ultimately how and why Jesus is divisive. What what effect does he have uh, upon all those who who hear uh, what he teaches? Uh, And it is ultimately what he teaches, what he proclaims, that, that is divisive. No one really had too many issues with his miracles. Right? Everyone was pro-feeding thousands of people, uh, healing the sick, uh, restoring sight to the blind. No one complained about those things. But it was his words rather than his works that were divisive. And that, that's what created uh, a, a line of demarcation. Now, what are you going to do with the truth that he has taught? Are you going to receive it in faith or are you going to reject it in unbelief? And ultimately, that's what we're going to see. What does the teaching of Jesus do in the hearts and minds of people? What effects does it have upon them and what effects does it create in us? Uh, And in these verses, we're going to see four polarizing effects uh, of Christ upon people both then and now. And, And the first one is seen in verses 40 through 42. You say that Jesus confuses some people. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so what the Apostle John records for us is, is these three groups uh, who were speaking on that day. And there were probably even more uh, groups and opinions uh, about Jesus uh, throughout the, the feast on that final day. But the first group, some were saying that Jesus was the prophet. And this is speaking of uh, the prophet predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. So Moses says, hey, in the future God is going to send you a prophet just like me. And when he does, you need to listen to him and follow him. And so at that time in Israel, there were some who believed uh, that that prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18 uh, was different than uh, the Messiah prophesied elsewhere in the Old Testament. So some of those among the crowd were willing to say, Jesus is this prophet, but I'm not sure that he's the Messiah. Now, that's this first group. Then there's a second group who says, no, I, we think that he's the Christ. We think that he is the Messiah, the, the one that we have been waiting for. But then there's also a third group who says, wait a second. The Christ doesn't come from Galilee. The, the scriptures say that, that the Messiah is to come from the line of David, and from the city of Bethlehem, the village of uh, David. And again, this is ironic because if they had just asked a simple question, hey, Jesus, where were you born? Right? That that would have cleared up a whole lot of this. 
Uh, and again, this is additional irony uh, that, that John is always throwing into this narrative, especially here in John chapter 7, because what is cited as something that should disqualify Jesus from being the Messiah is actually a confirmation that he is the Messiah. Right? And the reader, if you're familiar with Scripture, we would know this, and we would kind of chuckle, like, huh, if they only knew that he actually was born in Bethlehem. They assumed, the people did, that because Jesus had grown up in Nazareth, that's where he was born. But that is not the case. And there is much confusion about Jesus at this feast. How do we interpret who he is and how we are to respond? And yet confusion about him should not be a reason for not believing in him. Okay? Indeed, our confusion about him and his teachings should draw us to study him even more. Right? We need to seek to answer the questions that we have uh, and answer them according to Scripture. Uh, I've said this to the, our youth students so many times. It's okay to ask questions. We have a, a question and answer box, and every single week uh, we, we would uh, allow them to, to write whatever they wanted, and we, and we would talk through those questions. We want uh, to answer all the questions that we have. There are answers for all of our questions in Scripture. But, but we have to go to the right place looking for answers. And we have to allow our confusion to drive us closer and closer to Christ. Uh, one... Uh, Harvard professor, I love what he, he said. He says that any educated person should at some point have critically examined the claims of Christianity and should be able to explain why he or she does or does not believe them. Again, we've talked about this in the past. Because of what Jesus has claimed and what he has proclaimed, we have to wrestle with who he is and what he's taught. It's not just a matter of that's not important. No, it is of the utmost importance, and we have to wrestle with that. And when there's confusion, we seek answers. All that Jesus has taught is worthy of our thoughtful evaluation. And you might be confused about some of the teachings of Jesus, but you should not stay confused. Now, you should seek truth, press in all the more, study God's Word, wrestle with big theological and moral questions, seek understanding, pray for faith, seek help from others who know the Scriptures, but yet most importantly, study the Word for yourself. Now, it is of the utmost importance that each one of us here knows how to open up our Bibles, read it, and understand it so that you can evaluate what anybody else is going to say about God's word. Right? When, when I'm up here speaking, you should be looking and, and checking. Is that really what this is saying? Right? And then you, if, you, if, it, if you feel like I'm not lining up with scripture, talk with me in the back afterwards. Be like, hey, this is not what that said. That's not what that means. You should all be Bereans. Knowing the truth of God's word, being able to say, ah, that didn't sound right, or that you were off slightly on this, Thomas, or with anybody else. Being able to be discerning is so important. It helps to clear up that confusion. And one effect that the teaching of Jesus has upon people is confusion. But then there's the second effect, which we're going to see in this passage, and that is division. So Jesus confuses some people. Secondly, Jesus divides all people. This is seen in verses 43 and 44. 
says, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Jesus divides everybody. That Greek word for division there is schisma, where we get our English word schism. Uh, A disuniting, a a tearing apart of something that is united. That's what Jesus does. If you hear him and receive his truth, there's going to be separation. There's going to be division. The teachings of Jesus are are worth studying and understanding. And as we saw, there's, there's division uh, among who he is. And then also there's some people there uh, who uh, are hearing and receiving him as Christ. And others are like, we've got to arrest this guy. Based, and, and Jesus isn't speaking two-faced. He's just, this is the truth. And then how are people responding? And you either will accept his claims of deity and his invitation to salvation, or you'll reject them both. You know, our response to Jesus will, will naturally divide us, separate us. And even as Jesus said in that Matthew 10 passage that I read earlier, that he's not come to bring peace but a sword. Uh, and he will lead to division even within families. And some of you have felt that. In fact, when, uh, when Jesus was, was eight days old, Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple in Jerusalem to to dedicate him to the Lord and to offer sacrifices in worship of God. And they met a man there, there named Simeon. Uh, and, and Simeon spoke a prophetic word to Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. It said, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I think that's what every young mother wants to hear about her son, right? Like, hey, your son's going to cause a whole bunch of problems. He's going to divide everyone, and he's going to severely hurt your soul. Like, if if you're married, you're you're just taking all of this in, right? But, But that's the nature of who Jesus is. He's going to divide. He's going to, to pierce Mary deeply. How painful would it be to see your son on the cross? There's so much there. Again, this is always what happens with truth. It is divisive. So it's no surprise that if Jesus claims to be the truth, the life, and the way, then he's going to be a divisive figure. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once wrote uh, of the, the divisive nature of Christ in this way. He says, I have heard of a whole parish in which there were no religious bickerings because there was no religion. There were no religious strifes because nobody had anything worth striving for. And that, he added, is not a state of things over which I can rejoice. If we understand what truth is, it's naturally going to to divide. Again, we can be gracious and we need to rightly understand theological triage. We need to rightly understand the things that we should divide over and the things that we can say. We can disagree on that and still be friends. We can still uh, be in church ministry together and disagree on that. 
know, we rightly understand truths of Scripture, but we, we also understand that division occurs where truth claims are made. And where there is no truth, there will be no division. But truth will divide. And the truth about Jesus ultimately divides all people into one of two categories. Right? You either trust Him in faith that He is the Son of God who was sent by God to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to be resurrected from the dead and descend into heaven. If you believe that and trust that, you are now in Christ. You have eternal life. You have received all the spiritual blessings in Christ. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, if you looked at everything that is claimed about Jesus, everything that he taught, and you're like, I don't believe that. Puts you in, into a whole other category. That's where the division goes. And if you, if you look to Christ in unbelief and in rejection, then this is the closest that an unbeliever will ever get to God, to knowing His grace, His mercy, His love. Think about that. Because after this life, they will only know the righteous anger and wrath of God poured out upon their sin and their rebellion. But that's divisive. Divides all of humanity into two groups. Jesus confuses some people, but He divides all people. And thirdly, verses 45 and 46, Jesus amazes some people. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Again, if if Jesus doesn't confuse you, he will probably amaze you. That's what we see here. These, these officers, these temple guards who were commissioned back in verse 32 by the Pharisees and the chief priests, they were sent and they were told, hey, go look for the right moment, the opportune time to arrest Jesus because we can't have him preaching the way that he is to the people. We, we need to address this. That's what the religious leaders were saying. And so the the Levites, the the temple guard, were sent. And and for several days, because they were commissioned in the middle of the feast, and now here we are on the last day, for several days they would have been hanging out among the crowd or in the back of the the, the temple, just looking for the right time. But they also would have been listening to Jesus that entire time, hearing everything that he said, everything that he taught. Now, we don't have that recorded for us here in John 7. But after... Uh, you know, around this final day, the, the temple guard returns to their, their bosses empty-handed. And the religious leaders are very, very upset. And they demand an explanation. Why don't you have the person we sent you to grab? And, and the answer that the temple guard gives tells us so much. Because these men could have said, well, you know what, boss? There just wasn't a good opportunity. Or have you seen how many people there are? And they were listening to Jesus. If, I, if we grab him, we would, have, we would have had a fight on our hands. There would have been a riot. They don't say that. What do they say? And no one ever spoke like this man. Or also possible in the Greek, a man has never spoke like that. Meaning, Jesus' words are more than just the words of a mere man. Men don't speak with the power, the persuasiveness the authority that Jesus spoke with. 
they heard Jesus and they came to a completely different conclusion. They said, wow. James Montgomery Boyce, pastor back in Philadelphia, said this, It is dangerous to linger around the Lord Jesus for whatever reason. It is dangerous to be exposed to his teaching. As time went by, these guards became impressed with what he was saying. And being impressed, they found themselves unable to proceed with their mission. And I myself found the the very same thing to be true. Back when I was in college, I was a hater of God. I loved sin, the, the way of the world hated everything to do with Christianity. And at that point in time, I thought that Christianity was just a way to control people. And I'd heard a quote from Vladimir Lenin, who was the the leader of the Russian Revolution. He said, religion is the opiate of the masses. I was like, that seems about right. But then somebody challenged me to read the Bible. And I was like, sure, I can do this. It's not a dangerous thing to do. But as I began to read the Bible, it changed me, transformed me. And you cannot read the words of Christ and not begin to realize, okay, he's not a a normal man. So much more than that. And I came to the same conclusion that these temple guards came to. I know it's the same conclusion that, that most of you have come to. Right? Jesus is not just a mere man. No one speaks like this. The words of Christ should amaze us. They should bring awe, reverence, fear, and worship into our hearts. The words of Christ should, should pierce our souls to convict us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to call us to humility and obedience, to demand our allegiance and our affection. Words of Christ should cause all of that. To cause us to see that He is the bread of life, the the fountain of living water. That we must look to Him to be sustained. That we must look to Him as the only source of satisfaction in this life. We must be convinced that He is the resurrection and the life. That He is the only hope that we have in life and in death. And indeed, if we are in Him, then death has lost its sting. Because to to die, to pass from this life into the next is to move from being absent from the Lord to being present with Him. The words of Christ should have the same effect upon us as they had upon the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. After He had appeared to them and hidden His identity, uh, they they arrive in in Emmaus and he, He breaks bread and is praying with Him. And suddenly they realize who this person is who had been with Him, that it was Jesus. And they said this, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road and while He opened the Scriptures to us? And that should be our prayer. When we open God's Word, when we read about Christ, that it should amaze us. It should have that feeling in our hearts, that growing love and affection for Him. And when 
whether that's reading it privately, reading it publicly, studying God's Word, there should be a joy and an amazement that comes as we grow in our knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ. Jesus' words will confuse some, they will divide all, and they will amaze some. And then finally, the fourth effect that we see is that Jesus reveals sin in all people. Verses 47 to, to 52. Again, even, even going back to what Simeon said in that passage I quoted in Luke chapter 2. And that this boy, Jesus, is going to be the, the cause of the rising and falling of many in Israel. And also that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. What we're going to see here in these verses is all of the sin, all of the ugliness that is coming out of the the hearts of the religious leaders. They are so hostile to Christ at this point in time. And in their interactions with Him and in their interactions with everything that He is teaching, they are being exposed. They are being revealed. As we read these verses, just start to notice all of the sins that you see uh, being revealed from the, the lives of these religious leaders. The, the pride, the arrogance, the hostility, the hypocrisy. But beginning in verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So in responding to the the answer from the temple guard, hey, why didn't you bring him? Have you heard the guy teach? They say, oh, are you also deceived? Just like the crowd? And they, and they give two arguments. And they say, number one, not one of the religious leaders has believed in him. No one. And the implication there is the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the, and the rulers, the chief priests, they're the ones who know, Right? They know the truth. Not one of them has believed in Jesus. They are deceived by Him. So they elevate themselves as the religious leaders. Not one of us is deceived. And then they look down upon the common people. They say, these common people who are following Him, they're accursed. They don't know the law. Are you also deceived? Major, major pride. And the, just the, the hearts of the, the teachers, the shepherds of Israel, viewing all of the people as being accursed. The Pharisees were the religious leaders, and, and the religious system in Israel at this point in time uh, was created by them. And they viewed all of the common people as being accursed and unable to really even achieve salvation because none of them knew the law to the extent that the Pharisees did. None of them were willing to keep every jot and tittle of the law like the Pharisees did. So... Salvation really was beyond all of the common people. Such great pride. But then right after this, and again, the the irony here in John 7 is amazing. Right after they say, not one of the religious leaders has believed in him. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus earlier in John chapter 3, who is the most prominent teacher among the Sanhedrin, Jesus refers to him in John chapter 3 as the teacher in Israel. 
Nicodemus kind of clears his throat and speaks to a well. And Nicodemus doesn't give a, a declaration of faith here. But what he does is make a plea for fairness. And in doing that, he's pointing out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and of the religious leaders. In verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? We really need to hear from Jesus and debate with him. Uh, and really understand who he is what, and what he is doing before we condemn him. That's what the law proclaims us to do. So Nicodemus is there just saying like, hey, as the guardians of the law, we should probably keep the law. Right? We, we should practice what we are preaching and what we know to be true. But the Pharisees respond to Nicodemus with the same hostility that they had demonstrated towards the temple guards. They accuse Nicodemus of being biased say, you are not from Galilee too, right? Are you just agreeing with Jesus because you're from Galilee? Heavy-handed accusation. And then they, they say, or they give it two commands, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. <clears throat> and it's kind of, have you guys ever been in an argument with somebody and you're just so determined to win that you just start saying ridiculous things, Right? That's kind of what's happening right here. Uh, I know no one else can identify me with, uh, with me on that. But, but that's what begins to happen here. Like, they're just so hostile and so worked up that they just say things that are not true. Now, and they should know that they're not true because uh, they say that no prophet arises from Galilee. And it's very easy to name three prophets from the Old Testament from Galilee. Elijah, uh, Jonah and Nahum. And it's funny because the town of Capernaum, which is in Galilee, literally means village of Nahum, the prophet. You're like, really? No prophet arises out of, Ga- of Galilee? And there's a town named after a prophet right here? So they're just so bent against Jesus. And everything that, that is happening here is revealing what is taking place in their hearts. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And there is a, a growing hostility in the hearts of these religious leaders. And that is being brought out as they interact with Jesus. All of their sin is exposed when they come into contact with Him and His teachings. And this is exactly what happens with any one of us when we come into contact with Christ and His Word. The light of His holiness shines into the depths of our souls and it reveals everything that is in there. And the question is not what will be revealed when the light of Christ shines into our hearts. not a question of what. The answer to that has always been and will always be sin. That's what is found in the human heart. And sin will be found in each of our hearts, not just in the depths of our heart, but in the shallows and on the surface. Jesus doesn't need to rent scuba gear to go looking for your sin. It's just right there. He he knows exactly where to find it, and it permeates at all levels. Our sin is always easily found and 
quickly revealed. And again, the, the true question concerning what Christ reveals in our hearts is whether or not we will grieve and weep over what is revealed. When, when we interact with Jesus, He's going to show us our sin. And then what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Will we see our sin and our sinfulness? Will we confess it? Many of us like to confess sin. And we say confession is the doorway to repentance. You can't get to repentance without walking through the doorway of confession. But a lot of us love to hang out just in the doorway. But we love to confess, but then not take that next step and forsake. We don't like to repent. We'll confess, hey, I need to cut off this arm. Are you going to do it? Uh, I like the arm. Well, you just said you need to cut it off. Again, you're confessing, but are you going to act? Are you going to repent? When we see our sinfulness, we come into contact with Christ, with God. The prophet Isaiah experienced this. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, has a vision of seeing God on His throne. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Job chapter 42, when he finally gets to converse with God. Job says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The Apostle Peter, in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, after Jesus performs a miracle, Peter runs up to him and falls down and says, Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, after speaking about his own sin, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that, that is a right response. When we come into contact with Christ, our sin is revealed. That's how we should respond which makes the response of the religious leaders here all the uglier, right? This growing hostility. Their hypocrisy is exposed by Nicodemus in a very gracious way. Doesn't the law say we should kind of listen to him and hear him out? No, are you also from Galilee? You know, the guardians of the law disregarding the law to pass judgment on the, on the one who wrote the law. Love what the Puritan Henry Scudder wrote regarding hypocrisy. He says, The best man may do some hypocritical and guileful actions, as David did in the matter of Uriah. But it is not the having of hypocrisy that denotes a hypocrite, but the reigning of it, which is when it is not seen, confessed, bewailed, and opposed. And this is what we have to see, that Christ sees all of the sin in you. All of the sin in me. All of the sin in each of us. And we would think that if He knew us that well and so intimately that He would say, okay, I'm done with you. But again, think back to what we looked at last week. Christ knowing all of your sin, all of my sin. Yet what does He say? He says, if anyone thirsts, come to Me and drink. He still invites us into fellowship, into relationship with Him, to look to Him in faith so that through Him we might be forgiven, cleansed, and then clothed in His righteousness. 
That's why the Apostle Paul, in that Romans 7 passage I just mentioned, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But he doesn't end there. He says, But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in the very next verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As you look at your own life, how have you responded to Christ? What effect has His Word had upon you? Jesus reveals sin in all people. Have you clearly seen that sin resides in your heart? Jesus divides all people. Each one of us will either respond to Jesus in faith or we will reject Him in unbelief. Jesus will amaze some people. Uh, And I praise that He has and will continue to amaze you. I pray that He has captured your heart to such an extent that you can find satisfaction in no one and nothing else. But Jesus also will confuse some people. If you're here this morning and you have questions, if there is confusion about who Jesus is, about something that He has taught, please come talk with me. Happy to to try and answer the best as I can here in the moment, or let's grab coffee and talk more. But don't allow confusion to keep you from Christ. Press in all the more. Search for answers. We would love to see you come to know Jesus Christ in faith and the truth of His Word. But that question, what effects have the words of Christ had upon your life? That is, that is a worthy question to contemplate this afternoon. As you go from here, really examining your own heart, even as we examined our hearts earlier for communion, how has Christ changed me? Has He changed me? And the beauty is looking at how Christ has changed you. What a reason for celebration as you look back at who you used to be versus who you are now. And what a reason to rejoice at the transformation that Christ has has brought about in our lives. But again, I also want to encourage you uh, to to fellowship with us this evening because Reuben's going to answer that question a little bit later. How has Christ affected him in his life? Hearing that testimony of how has Christ worked in his life and in our life. And I guess there's, there's a football game that's being aired before and after Reuben's testimony. Uh, it's like an inconsequential game because what really matters, what really matters most is that question. How is the word of Christ going to affect me? Is it going to change me? Is it going to transform me? Is it going to confuse me? Am I going to respond with hostility when my sin is revealed? What will happen? How will I respond? It's of the utmost importance. Again, everything else is inconsequential. That we have to understand. But we can also praise God and rejoice. And even though He knows all of our sin, He still invites us to come to Him. If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Amen? Let's pray.